thank you so much for those uh, those wonderful remarks. Um, actually, I want to start with your last comment, uh, where you take a look beyond the shores of the United States and and offer a comparative lens on where the U.S. might end up if we don't address some of the shortcomings that you identified. Uh, I'm curious whether in, in looking beyond uh, the United States, perhaps to Europe, perhaps to Asia, perhaps elsewhere, you see also examples that we might have in terms of either uh, different approach to the rules of the game, uh, enforcement budgets, uh, creation of, of networks, and also the extent to which the basis of financial fraud has now become global with the process of globalization. So that coordination and engagement across national lines is crucial, a crucial part of the, uh, the equation. Well, let me answer the second part of your question first, because um, I'm not particularly convinced that uh, many of our countries that we often compare ourselves with do a much better job than we do. Uh, the, uh, uh, but is, there's no doubt that um, fraud has become much more international. I'll give you just a, a very small example, but so when I was a prosecutor, a young prosecutor, one of the first fraud cases I ever prosecuted was a guy who uh, defrauded uh, widows out of their life savings by romancing them. Uh, and they had to get to invest in public real estate ventures. And he did this by meeting with the widows personally and engaging their uh, emotions and then carrying out his fraud. About a year ago, a guy, three guys actually, were prosecuted and convicted in my court were doing the same basic fraud, but they were all from abroad and they all operated through text messages, emails, and all the other modern forms of communication. They didn't have to actually meet their victims. Um, they just romanced them by email, so to speak, um, pretending to be all sorts of things they weren't. Um, and um, eventually um, uh, took them um, just about for everything they had. It was a heartbreaking case as had been the original case, but it does show how fraud has become uh, international and that's true at a bigger level as well, but I just wanted to give that some So you, you mentioned uh, in your talk, the incentives confronted by SEC officials. I'm curious for your reflections on a, a similar analysis with United, United States attorneys. So the it's a little bit different, um, but it still has to do with resources. So when I was chief of the fraud unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York for many uh, fraud cases abroad. Um, uh, we, uh, I used to say to uh, a young assistant, you know, we, we detected some signs of fraud on the part of this 
um, company called WorldCom, uh, but uh, we don't know how high it goes. So I'm going to turn it over to you. It may come to nothing. Keep an open mind. Um, but it may go up several levels. And it'll probably take you two to three years uh, to um, find out whether there's a big case there or not. Um, and all I can tell you is that if there is a big case there, that will be a great case. So there was a little bit of that incentivizing, but at the same time, it was going to take two to three years out of this person's life in the case of World Common. Ultimately, the CEO was indicted for the efforts and went to prison for 25 years. Um, now, the way it works is um, you say, well, we detected some small indications of fraud on the part of this uh, large company. Um, we'll, uh, we've got a choice. Either we will spend two to three years, and although it might only involve one assistant U.S. attorney, it would involve numerous agents, um, saying how far it goes, or we can go after the company because we respond to security and tell them that they're dead because we know that someone committed this fraud in the company, and um, uh, they got to pay us. Uh, $10 million uh, and faithfully promised never to do it again. Um, and that'll take maybe three to six months. And the tendency of more and more has been to choose that latter route. Uh, this was particularly strong, I have to say, in both. Uh, the Obama and Bush administrations, and it was continued by the Trump administration. Now, the Deputy Attorney General Monica has said that she's going to change this, uh, and I very much hope she will, because it is a choice. But the choice in the, too often has been dictated by resources rather than the broader long-term implications. You noted in your talk that many of those uh, agreements include not just restitution, not just the fine, but also then uh, negotiated promises by the firm to change business practices one way or another. And associated with that, and also the federal sentencing guidelines that came in the mid-1990s has been a dramatic increase in Clients departments within large corporations. I'm curious whether you have any reflections on the degree to which those settlement agreements actually change corporate behavior in a meaningful way and what the monitoring is like in those agreements. Yeah, I don't have much personal experience with respect to that, but I can tell you what the literature says, beginning again with uh, the very excellent book by Brandon Carrick. Uh, called Too Big to Jail, where he looked at all these agreements since the late 1990s to 2014, which was the cutoff for his book. Um, and uh, what he found was first that there was 
uh, a high rate of recidivism by those companies that have entered into these agreements. And secondly, that one of the reasons for that is that it wasn't really internalized. It was viewed as a checklist. Okay, so uh, we have to, to comply with our agreement with government, check this box and this box and this box, but aha, we want to make money some other way, uh, creativity abounds. Uh, so uh, I think it's been uh, a wholly modest success. You also noted in your talk that uh, class actions can have an impact, especially when there is the force of, of a, 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 a parallel or connected government investigation or uh, or legal action. Um, one you know, one might look at also at the jurisdictional question there. When is it a federal uh, uh, agency with the Department of Justice on the one hand, uh, or is, when is it coordinated action among the states? Uh, I wonder if you have any reflections on the, the relative benefits of those different modes of amplifying the private class act. So there have been some modest studies done as to the first part of your question, and they indicate that the uh, public perceives the bringing of action by the government as much more meaningful than the collection of money by uh, a class action. Now that's different from how it's necessarily received by the people within the company, and there haven't been too many studies of that. There are studies to do for obvious reasons. Uh, I think it has been interesting to see how in the absence of more meaningful federal enforcement, the states have sometimes gotten together. Uh, but this has mostly not been in the area of fraud, it's been in the area of public health. So the tobacco settlements are the perfect example of this, where, uh, and there was a fortunate aspect for years the tobacco companies were lying about what they actually internally knew, which was that the tobacco caused cancer, cigarettes caused cancer. But uh, it was not until the states got together uh, to bring these actions that there was a really meaningful impact on a lot of the tobacco companies. Um, there's to a lesser extent uh, a similar thing going on now with the connection with the opioid uh, crisis. There have been a number of states that have gotten together to try to go after that. But these are, again, mostly civil actions. They're even and they've been connected, uh, but but it's rarely been um, criminal actions. I mean, I don't know about you, but aren't you a little offended at the fact that a number of companies with a full knowledge and complicity of their high-level executives push opioids on American doctors if the prescriptions to be given for pain on American public is something that um, they need um, uh, to put faith in. Um, when they knew 
that these drugs were highly addictive and they would result in thousands of people dying from overdoses with fever and I haven't checked on this recently, but last time I checked, while the companies have been gone after by both state and federal agencies, not a single criminal prosecution above a misdemeanor has been brought against any of the top executives. Uh, I see somebody say I'm wrong, and maybe you know something. You're wrong. John Kapoor, who was the head of Insys, which is a company that had Illinois roots. And, All right, well, what about Purdue? My understanding is, is a lot. Yeah, Purdue Pharma, the self executives go out to plead the misdemeanors, but no, that was the only ground. That was the first Purdue Pharma prosecution yeah. and the first investigation yeah. that let them on. I mean, I, you know, the, 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 I guess I will have to recuse myself in the several times before me because to me it sounded like someone was guilty of murder. Uh, but uh, we, you heard earlier today, uh, comments about the impact or the resulting uh, legal uh, cases coming out of the financial crisis. Similarly, uh, almost no criminal prosecutions uh, out, of, out of the massive array of mortgage frauds. Um, you raise here an issue about popular moral indignation in the face of some of this behavior. The place where uh, there is a more participatory dimension in the federal courts is the jury. And I'm, I'm just curious if you have reflections about uh, what you've seen from jurors, either in Guadir or in, in uh, the way the juries have responded to cases, whether you have a sense of the impact of this ongoing incidence of fraud, um, the cynicism that it can elicit in some in some quarters, whether, whether you see that operating at, at the local security. So, let me start by saying that, like most American judges, I'm a very strong believer in the wisdom of jurors. Um, it's funny you talk to judges uh, in foreign countries where they don't have juries, and they say, oh, how do they understand what's going on? Believe me, um, my experience, the jurors have a very good idea of what's going on. I've had over 300 jury trials, and I talk to the juries after every trial, and they, I'm always impressed by how fully they understood uh, what was going on. Um, and, 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 and it serves a lot of other positive purposes, which is, this is one of the few opportunities in American life today where an average citizen can play a really important role in a specific matter. Uh, because he or she is helping to determine uh, uh, the future of this particular defendant. Um, the, uh, but having settled that, um, the real problem is not the one that your question is directed at. The real problem is the huge decrease in jury trials. So the, the statistics are that 97% of all criminal cases in the United States are settled by plea bargain. And the reason for that, primarily, 
is that we ratcheted up the penalty so high that the best thing a criminal defense lawyer can do for it is our implied is to get a plea bargain. This has all sorts of bad consequences, including some innocent people could be guilty of the crimes they never committed. But another consequence, and maybe one of the worst consequences, is that the criminal justice of this country is no longer really being determined by truths, it's being determined by prosecutors. So I think we have time for a, a little bit of uh, audience participation. So I'd like to uh, ask the law students if they have any questions. I think we can take at least a couple. <laughs> yes. So in terms of your comments on like executive incentives um, and how they've kind of distorted the, the way in which uh, financial reporting occurs, do you have you come across any solutions you think are persuasive in realigning executives' incentives with long-term shareholders' incentives and maximizing firm value over time? Well, there's a book, and I'm sorry to say I'm blanking on the title, but it's by Mark Steinberg, who is a uh, law professor at SMU Law School. Uh, and he has a number of very interesting ideas. For example, he would uh, require that the uh, chairman of the board of uh, every corporation not be an executive and not have any prior employment relationship with the company. Purely independent. Uh, he would federalize all uh, securities law so that uh, a state like Delaware, which has very strong incentives to uh, be very good to executives, uh, would not control. But he has a bunch of other uh, suggestions. Uh, but, but to be frank, I don't see that happening in the immediate future. But those are, he does have very good suggestions, but I'm, I'm afraid they're not likely to happen soon. You may not be able to get there. Yeah. Right. Well, Judge Rakoff, thank you so much for a wonderful keynote.